Hello everyone, welcome to this next PwC Tax Byte on the Brexit. My name is Peter Dere and I have brought with me today a few experts to talk with you about the Brexit. We're not going to talk about VAT, flow of goods, people, all of these are very, very important topics, probably very high on your agenda if you talk about or think about the impact of Brexit. But today we will talk about the direct tax consequences probably less high on the agenda, but nevertheless, as we will be discussing today, um, it is something you need to consider. Um, so who, are, who do I have with me today? We have uh, Jenny Bullivant, an international tax expert based in the UK. So we will get the UK insights in this podcast as well. And we have Tamara Geboers and Jean-Philippe van West, um, two international tax experts in my team here in Brussels. Um, um, together, we will talk about the Brexit impact and direct taxes. I'm very curious, Jenny, can you share a bit of your thoughts on what are, according to you, the main direct tax consequences of the Brexit? Thanks, Peter. Yeah, as you've said, direct tax is not really the headline at Brexit, and that's probably why this isn't the first in your Brexit series. There are some important changes, though, impacting direct taxation, and I've split these between those that have an obvious impact and those where the impact is less obvious. So I think most of the listeners will know that after the 1st of January 2021, the EU directives will no longer be applicable to UK companies, that be the parent subsidiary directive, the interest and royalties directive, etc. I thought I'd give a, uh, an example of how that might affect you. So you may currently have a clearance in place under, for example, the Interest and Royalties Directive. Now, the UK tax authorities have said that they will honour that interest withholding tax clearance until its natural expiry date. But that's by no means reciprocated across Europe. So if you are relying on a clearance under the Interest and Royalties Directive, it's worth checking what the position will be post 1st of January next year. I mentioned there were some less obvious impacts, and that goes back to what you were saying, Peter, about most of the discussion being around the movement of goods, uh, imports, VAT registrations, etc. Will you be pleased to know I'm not going to talk about that, other than to say that those changes may mean that groups want to change their operating model or their supply chain. That might be the case if undertaking certain functions in the UK is, is now more problematic. Or indeed, you might be increasing functions in the UK if you can no longer rely on sharing EU group functions as easily. An obvious consequence of that is that if you're changing transaction flows, changes the withholding tax position. Back to what I said up, up top, the Interest and Royalties Directive won't apply any longer, but you may be able to claim under a double taxation treaty. But a point of warning, that does take quite a bit of time and can take upwards of three months for the clearance to come through. So you want to anticipate that. And it could also mean that if you're changing the business model, you might want either to eliminate the UK or merge it and maintain a branch and move assets um, around your group. And if you're changing function, once in the new structure, is your existing transfer pricing policy still right? Does it need 
to be changed to reflect those changes to your operating model? Can you change those contracts quickly and pricing? A specific example that we've seen is a knock-on effect on the ability to claim research and development credits in the UK. If the UK changes the nature of what it's providing or who it's providing those services to, to have an impact on your cash position in the UK. And of course, getting into the new structure itself could be problematic, um, whether that's it, where you've previously been relying on tax-free transfers around the EU. Yeah, indeed, Jenny. Um, uh, it's a very interesting point that you bring up that last point because we have been relying in Europe on 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 the merger directive to restructure businesses cross-border in a neutral manner. Uh, the flexibility of that directive is, is very important. I think Tamara, in 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 day-to-day -day, uh, discussions we have with with clients, this is going to be a key important point. Can you share a bit your your thoughts on this? The the impact of the merger directive. Yes, thank you, Peter. Uh, indeed, this is a very important topic because today, as you mentioned, based on the EU merger directive, it is possible to implement a cross-border merger between two EU countries or two countries in the European Economic Area, so the EEA, in a tax-neutral way, meaning that a rollover regime can be claimed if certain conditions are met. Now, of course, after the Brexit, UK tax resident companies will no longer be considered as a tax resident in an EU or EEA country. And as a result, a cross-border merger with a UK tax resident company would no longer be covered by the rollover relief clause. So that's really an important one to take into account linked to reorganizations. Now, I also thought of some other consequences, some of which you may have thought of, others are maybe new to you. Um, one element links to existing consolidation regimes in the EU. There are a number of countries, including Belgium, but for example, also the Netherlands and other countries who have consolidation regimes. These are typically applicable for tax resident companies, but sometimes based on the direct application of the law, also for tax resident companies, which are held by a common EU or EEA company. Now, of course, again, after the Brexit, UK tax resident companies are no longer tax residents in an EU or EEA country. And as a result, the conditions for the consolidation regime would no longer be met. Then I also thought about treaties. Various tax treaties concluded between countries include what we call a limitation of benefits provision or an LOP provision. And, and such clause essentially tests the substance of a structure and whether the granting of treaty benefits is within the purpose of the treaty. Now, in cases, these limitation of benefits provisions require a group to be listed on a recognized stock exchange. And this is defined as an EU stock exchange. Now, again, after Brexit, the London stock exchange will no longer be an EU stock exchange and does no longer fall under the scope of this LOB provision. So that means that taxpayers will have to see, analyze whether they are still um, able to apply treaty benefits. Then the last point that I wanted to mention uh, relates to EU case law. 
So over the years, the European Court of Justice has, has issued various case law on cross-border direct tax elements. Now, after Brexit, the court will lose its competence in relation to the UK. So claims to the direct application of ECG case law will probably no longer be honored by the UK. And this is also linked with the UK government's ambition to take back control of their laws after Brexit, as they mentioned it a number of times. So Peter, that were a number of elements that I thought of, which are also important from a direct tax perspective in relation to Brexit. Thanks, Tamara. I think these are very, very important points that you bring up, um, especially also like the case law. It's, it's fully right that the, the European Court of Justice have applied the freedom of establishment in its case law and, and has protected their, I think, taxpayers against potential differences in treatment. Jean-Philippe, you as, as, an, as a true expert in, in European law, um, how do you see the impact there on the fundamental freedoms and, and Brexit? Exactly. The fundamental freedoms are very relevant uh, with respect to Brexit. And uh, one important advantage of being a resident of the EU, be it a resident individual or a resident legal entity, is that you are protected under the fundamental freedoms against discriminatory legislation that treats cross-border situations worse than purely domestic situations. And under the fundamental freedoms, tax rules should not hinder EU residents from doing business in another member state. In part, with respect to direct taxation, in particular, the free movement of establishment and the free movement of capital are of relevance. So what does it mean, actually? Because it sounds uh, very theoretical, free movement of establishment and free movement of capital. Well, let me explain this with a concrete uh, example. So in 2018, uh, we assisted a company with its migration from Belgium to the UK, but maintaining a PE in Belgium. Under Belgian tax law, a special tax declaration has to be filed when a company migrates and moves its legal seat to another country. So the client submitted the special tax declaration for the period from January to June 2018, the date uh, when the migration took place. Uh, the tax authorities applied uh, the tax rate of 33%. However, if a company changes its legal seat to another, so a, a Belgian company changes its legal seat to another location in Belgium, so let's say from Brussels to another city in Belgium uh, to Antwerp, then only uh, the tax rate of 29% would have been applicable. So it is clear that uh, the company that transferred its seat to the UK was treated worse than if it would have transferred its seat to another location in Belgium. Well, under this uh, fundamental freedoms, and in particular, the freedom of establishment, uh, this constitutes a uh, discrimination. And consequently, what we did, uh, we supported our client with filing a tax complaint uh, with the tax authorities, uh, requesting as well for the application of the lower 29% rate. And the tax authorities agreed. So this example illustrates that you really have uh, an impact here and going from a tax rate to 33% to 29%. So this is really uh, an advantage for the for the for the taxpayer. Unfortunately, this kind of protection will no longer be available under the freedom of establishment after Brexit. Fortunately, however, um, the freedom of capital does not only apply within the European Union, but also with respect uh, to third countries. And this is in particular re relevant with respect to in interest payments 
and uh, portfolio and dividends received uh, from portfolio shareholdings. And under certain conditions, uh, they can still benefit from the protection under the fundamental freedoms. And this is then uh, in, in particular of relevance with respect to withholding taxes on interest payments or uh, dividends received from portfolio shareholdings. So this, in a few words, Peter, uh, the relevance of the fundamental freedoms. Um, yeah. Thank you, Jean-Philippe. And, and indeed, you give now one example, but we have these situations situations every day uh, in the team and in discussions with clients. So um, the fundamental freedoms are indeed important. It is a benefit that will go away. But on the other hand, I would say also the state aid rules will go away and state aid rules limit the ability of European countries to um, give incentives and support to businesses. So um, state aid rules will go away. Jenny, I'm very interested now. Would it mean that uh, the UK will come a tax paradise next to the European Union when it is free to change its tax rules. Well, well, Peter, I'd say I'd be duty bound to say that the UK has always been a great place to do business, but um, a tax paradise. Well, we certainly don't have the weather for paradise. Um, yeah. But to, it's a serious point that you make in that referring back to what Tamara said earlier. Um, one of the main points around Brexit in the UK was the ability to claim back its laws. Um, and there are indeed proposals to repeal anything state aid related post the 1st of January. However, it is very clear that the only chance we have of getting a trade agreement with the EU, which at the date of recording of this podcast is, is, is still possible, if we have some sort of competition law in the UK. So, Peter, I don't think we'll have free reign to do away with everything competition related. Um, but yes, of course, we have more flexibility. Talking about doing away with EU related laws, though, um, it's worth picking up on DAC 6. Uh, and that, of course, being the EU's mandatory disclosure regime. Now, irrespective of what may happen in future political developments, DAC 6 has been fully implemented into UK domestic law and therefore must be fully complied with unless and until changes to the law are enacted. And we're not expecting any changes to remove our obligations here. Which begs the question, well, can other EU member states rely on UK disclosure from 2021 onwards? Um, and can we in the UK rely on disclosures of other member states? Well, the short answer is assuming no deal, probably not. The only reason the EU MDR rules continue to work in the UK during 2020 even, is that the transitional agreement specifically required everyone to treat the UK as an EU member state. And in the absence of any similar provision included in a future agreement post 1st of January 2021, it's very unlikely that EU member states can rely on UK disclosures. The flip side, can we in the UK rely on disclosures made in other EU member states? Well, again, the answer to that is, is, is no. If there is no deal, as our tax authorities would not get access to disclosures made in other territories under EU data sharing rules. So given the above, it would be wise to assume that if an arrangement is reportable both in the UK and one or more 
EU member states, separate reports will need to be made. And those may include slightly different fact, slightly different elements of information to be reported. So it's worth planning that ahead of time in light of the very narrow disclosure reporting deadlines. Okay. Um, thanks, Jenny, for clarifying that. Um, yeah, we have been talking and we get to the end of, of the podcast uh, gradually. We have been talking about a lot of things that will no longer apply, the directives, the freedoms, etc. Um, Tamara, does it mean that businesses will fall in a, in a vacuum now uh, without anything to rely on? No, of course uh, not, Peter. And, and we indeed have mentioned that a number of EU directives or regimes would no longer be applicable. Same for the freedoms. However, taxpayers should not forget that treaty protection remains available to them. Now, that being said, also in the treaty context, a lot is changing. We have the multilateral instrument, new rules, new anti-abuse rules. So maybe now it is a good time for taxpayers to consider to get advanced certainty on certain transactions. For example, through advanced pricing agreements or rulings in order to really get that certainty uh, when they are doing important transactions with the UK. Okay, well, good to know indeed that there is a, a fallback, eh? the extensive treaty network that uh, a lot of European countries have with UK, uh, indeed. Um, that brings us to the end of this podcast on Brexit and direct tax consequences. I want to thank everyone for listening in. Um, I want to thank uh, Jenny, Tamara and Jean-Philippe for sharing their insights. And I invite you to follow us on the website and on the different platforms. And uh, stay tuned, I would say, for our next uh, podcasts. Thank you. Thank you.